Hello and welcome to the Spiked Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week, as ever, we have Spiked's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, we'll be discussing the Western response to the conflict in Ukraine. So it's been another torrid week of fighting. The world has been shocked by the Russian attack on a maternity hospital in Mariupol. The White House has talked about the possible use of chemical weapons being planned and negotiations towards a ceasefire between Ukraine and Russia are ongoing. Tom, what have you made of this, um, especially looking at this from a sort of UK perspective? Well, I, th- I think there's a kind of sense about what we can do. And I think we'll get in- into in a minute about how we have responded to the crisis and how we haven't. I mean, I, I think over the course of the past 24 hours, we're recording this on the Thursday, particularly in the wake of that despicable attack in Mariupol that you were talking about, on the bombing of the maternity hospital. Again, you're kind of seeing ratcheting up of the talk. Mm. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon has kind of sort of said she's open to the concept of a no-fly zone. And obviously there's been more and more pressure on the UK government as well as Western governments full stop to get more involved. Um, and it just it just shows how not only is this very grim conflict continuing to rumble on, but also the potential for this to spark a much broader conflagration between um, Russia and the West and, and Europe is very much there. I mean, it's just, it's in this particular case, I mean, I think it also shows how despite the fact that something like a no-fly zone is being presented as almost like a very neat fix to the situation. Mm. It really isn't. I mean, at least according to James Heapy, the defence minister who was doing the media rounds this morning, the um, source of that bombing was grounded artillery. It wasn't from from the air. So a no-fly zone, despite being very risky in its own right, wouldn't have have solved this. So I think there's a lot of looking for a lot of neat answers. There's also a lot of just kind of cheap point scoring going on domestically about what Boris Johnson is or isn't doing. Uh, But I think people are just trying to uh, struggling to confront the reality, which is very messy and very grim at this point. Basically, mm. I mean, there does seem to be this this repeated refrain: "Why aren't we doing anything?" When you know there are some areas where we're not doing enough, but there are some areas where we're doing quite a lot. If you think about the amount of sanctions that have been levied, that's quite unprecedented. Or if you think about the weapons being sent to Ukraine, there you know we are getting involved in in that way, whether we like it or not. There seems to be, nevertheless, this sort of refrain that actually. Boris and the government are perhaps in the pay of the Russians, mm. have some kind of ideological sympathy with the Russians. I mean, what do you make of that absurd kind of talk? Well, I mean, there has been uh, this, but uh, by a lot of people, been turned into a kind of crude binary. Either you are um, willing on World War Three by any discussion of any kind of military action, and um, and basically we have to just roll over because Putin has nuclear weapons. I mean, Brendan mentioned this in his article for Spiked. This week, you know, th- just the kind of suggestion that it's over for the West and that we just have to give in to what um, to Putin's threats, and that because otherwise we'll all die in nuclear war. Um, and then on the other hand, there is a kind of complete a, a willful ignorance to the reality of what certain action would mean, mm. um, and a kind of flippancy with which people are talking about not the prospect of. World War Three, but about the kind of ruptures in within Europe that a war with Russia would cause, um, not just the threat of nuclear weapons, but the kind of destruction that would take place in, you know, perhaps in places like Poland, perhaps in neighbouring places of Ukraine. It's not something to um, be talked lightly about. 
you don't have a neat answer, but I think the kind of we must do something in capitals description often comes from people who have the luxury of not being able to understand or fully engage with the complexities of what's going on. Somewhere where we clearly could do something and pretty much the whole country agrees the UK government is not doing enough is in relation to refugees. I mean, there's, you know, it, we're talking about in the high 70, almost 80% of people saying that Ukrainians should be let in, but the government clearly mm. is not doing enough, has only let in or has only granted visas to less than a thousand people at the time of a recording. What have you made of that? It was grimly predictable, I think. And there are various different explanations for it. Um, some people would suggest that the Home Office in particular has a tendency to be almost too security obsessed to the point of it getting in the way of common sense or basic decency when it comes to a situation like this. There's probably something to that. Uh, there's a suggestion that well, this is um, a government mis- which is misreading the public mood. I don't think it's necessarily that. I think the problem with the Home Office is that it's genuinely dreadful. Like, it's mm. genuinely incredibly incompetent. It's infamously dysfunctional. I mean, it also controls everything from, you know, the borders to the police force. It's fundamentally always been a problem um, for anyone uh, running it. It's been declared not fit for purpose more times than anyone can remember. But when the stakes are this high, you just, you just the mind boggles. It's particularly because... There's obviously been a lot of discussion about how the particular bureaucratic process has completely failed, you know, Ukrainian um, refugees who, again, have a right to be here. They've got family. They can apply for these visas, you know, seeming that they're being expected to kind of run run from one end of France to another in order to fill out the proper paperwork in person. It's only today that we've heard about certain relaxation allowing um, the forms to be filled in online, which means they could crucially actually apply for this even before they leave Ukraine and all the rest of it. Only this is coming in now. You know, meanwhile, the EU has waived all visa um, restrictions on Ukrainians for three years. Mm. And so it's not even just a case of have you got the processes in place. There's things that you can just clear out of the way at a time like this if you've got clear thinking and political will. But there's clearly none of that. And I think it's one of those things where this was obviously exposed by the Afghanistan debacle as well. It's just how rubbish the British state is. Mm. Um, It's awful, dysfunctional. um, And at times like this, it can even fail people who desperately need our help. We desperately want to give them our help. And yet we still end up in a situation like this. I mean, it's it's just striking, definitely. I think that's such an important point that it's because there's been people talking about, you know, oh, this is just a kind of racist foreign mm. office happening again. De- home deliberately and, racist, yeah, some people and, suggested. Yeah. And Tories hate any kind of immigrants, even mm. ones feeling more hate refugees and you know, in some ways, it would kind of be easier if it was just a political question that you could challenge like that. But as Tom points out, you know, we cast your mind back not so far ago to the crisis of the the kind of exit from Afghanistan. And we know that one of the main problems was people not answering emails within the foreign office because they'd they were they were working from home. They were looking <laughs> after their mental health yeah. by not having too much screen time. All that bollocks, basically. There was not the system didn't work properly. I've been having a blow by blow of this because um, a dear friend and colleague of mine is with his Ukrainian wife in Poland at the moment trying to get her very young family over here. And it's not a case that they're being met by border guards saying stay out, but it's that you go to the visa center, the Wi-Fi doesn't work, the computers don't have chargers, they're Mm. asking you for seven years of your international history when you've just grabbed a suitcase and come to Poland fleeing from Kiev. 
it, it's it's just the kind of like a Kafkaesque evils of bureaucracy. But it does have to be said that while a lot of it can be blamed on sort of people not doing their job properly, there is also a, a level of it's not that I want to directly link it to the hostile environment thing because I think that's wrong. It's a different kind of context. But there is a sense in which you know Tom mentioned the the um, government misreading public will. This happened in a similar way with you know different context, but with the Windrush generation in which I think the government has decided that the, they know what they what the public thinks about immigration relating yeah. to Brexit or something. They've got this kind of characterised view. And so we have to be seen to be tough on security. And by the way, even the Labour Party is doing this because they think we need to look a bit tough because people care about borders. And actually, most people in the British public have a much more nuanced view. Yes, they don't want any, you know, they, they want to have control over their borders. But in times of crisis like this, we, we show solidarity to our fellow Europeans. So it, it's quite, it both in terms of process, but also in terms of politics, I think the British government is showing itself up. And the contrast is is clear with places like Poland and, and Hungary. Obviously, these places are on the border. So there's no point mm. in saying, you know, why hasn't Britain taken a million people in? Of yeah. course, that, that's a ridiculous comparison. But the fact that there is, you know, so much solidarity kind of being displayed in these places. Again, these are places that are often characterised, mischaracterised as racist, as unwelcoming. Xenophobic. Xenophobic, inherently xenophobic in, Mm -hmm. you know, these Eastern Europeans allegedly, um, is is very striking. We should talk a little bit about some of the domestic consequences of this and nowhere is this being more keenly felt than in energy prices. It seems as if every time you turn on the news, every single day, you know, the price of oil and the price of petrol, the price of gas is, is hitting new uh, records. Um, Tom, what have you made of this? Well, I think it's just been interesting how I think the government up until this point have struggled to sort of be frank with the public about what's coming. Hmm. It's hard to ignore now, but I think even before the uh, invasion of Ukraine kind of pushed all of these prices even higher um, into the near future, uh, there was this kind of difficulty of actually kind of reckoning with the scale of the problem they were walking into. You know, there's going to be so many people who are going to be pushed below the poverty line because of the raising of the energy price cap, which was already baked in as of April, yeah. let alone what's going to happen in the near future and all of the other knock-on effects to the economy as a result of um, you know the conflict and of parts of the world essentially being sealed off from the West and all the rest of it. Um, again, you're, you're seeing them kind of stumbling to get a loan scheme off the ground, mm. essentially, this kind of £200 bailout that people will be able to apply for. There's a real lack of grip on all of this. And I think there's also... It's exposed how much kind of short-term thinking has been going on or how much pie-in-the-sky thinking has been going on that for so long you had them kind of chasing ridiculous kind of eco-policies. They're still saying we're committed to net zero. You've got people across Europe, leaders that is, still saying, you know, the way out of this particular crisis we find ourselves, the way out of our dependence on Russian oil and gas, again, much more acute in the in mainland Europe than it is in the UK, yeah. is for embracing net zero, which is mm. nonsense. And the thing is, it just feels like this particular situation on all kinds of different fronts has just kind of shaken us out of the complacency that a lot of more better off Western countries have been able to kind of exist in for some time. Yeah. This idea that war and conflict is a thing in the past. The idea that you can piss about with windmills and act mm. like it's going to just all be all right in the end, even though it's clearly not the technology that you need to create cheap and reliable and secure energy. Um, all of that's coming home to roost now. The question is, have they got uh, the the grip and the willingness to do what needs to be done, even yeah. if it doesn't win them any plaudits in the Guardian comment pages or whatever? And it, that's still not entirely clear. You're seeing a lot of kind of short-termist measures in the UK, still a lot of hesitancy to sort of 
um, again, kind of reopen questions around fracking. They'll talk about it. They won't do it. Um, but they're going to have no choice soon, surely. But I find it so striking, particularly with the fracking thing, you know, that for so long we've just put kind of green virtue signaling and nimbyism against actually yeah. having a proper energy supply. I don't think we have that luxury anymore. Absolutely. I think, you know, the biggest myth going on in UK politics right now and in European politics as well is that environmentalism is the way out of this mm. when it's clearly the thing that's got us into this. And this is much clearer in Europe where, you know, if you protest and you manage to stop um, a gas well being built or an oil rig being built, it doesn't get rid of our dependence on oil. It just means we have to buy it from elsewhere yeah. because it's simply a fantasy, this idea that we can seriously get all of our energy from wind, from solar. And, you know, environmentalists also oppose nuclear, as we know, and mm. we're, you know, <laughs> lots of places are shutting down their nuclear plants. So we've created this uh, external dependency mm -hmm. on on Russia, on the rest of the world, ignoring the fact that, you know, energy supply is one of the most important things a government should be taking care of. As you said, we've put, you know, much more frivolous things ahead of that and the time to grow up is now, yeah. really. The West and the UK government or indeed European governments should not be allowed to get off the hook for the blame mm. of the energy crisis, food shortage crisis, higher, um, you know, food prices, energy prices, cost of living going up. It has not just happened in the last, what has it been, two weeks since Russia has invaded Ukraine. This is These are long-standing problems yeah. to do with things like, um, you know, not being able to diversify on energy, not diversify, but not being able to look at new things, being hostile to anything with the word nuclear and it be hostile to anything with fracking. Also, you know, the political decisions that in particular the UK government has taken of late, whether it be to, you know, a refusal to stand up against sort of green taxes or also the move to increase national insurance, all the, you know, squeezing people left, right and centre, being unwilling to look at the um, defunct way in which food production is organised in this country, you know, even things as like, you know, clamping down on farmers and or, on all the effects that it has on a, a nation being able to sustain itself, which comes into sharp focus yeah. in times of crisis like water, like the potential for war. It's amazing to think that the UK's sort of flagship food policy was how do we reduce the calories people intake? It's extraordinary. But this And this is the thing, you still are hearing, despite the fact that you are watching figures go, you know, people saying my gas bill was, you know, 100 or whatever pounds. Now it's going to be 500, you know, just eye-watering rises. People are being constantly interviewed on BBC and all this stuff saying, kind of crying, saying I'm going to a food bank. And it's just like, it just washes over people mm. now because it's, it's become sort of the norm. And you still have people saying, going on the Today programme, places like that, energy bosses, a politician saying, well, maybe this will make us think about consumption. And you're like, mm. So you're going to screw people. Yeah. And then you're going to tell them that that's a life lesson for them, that actually the cold March and April that, that lots of people are going to have will teach them to what's knit new jumpers. And that's a really dark position for politics to be in because you're actually celebrating the idea of want and of and of people needing and not being able to meet those needs. And if a government gets away with that, then it can yeah. get away with anything. Tom, are you going to turn down the thermostat to stick one to bad flat? <laughs> or on two jumpers, all yeah. that sort of stuff. I mean, it's, it's when you hear discussions like that, you kind of realise what a terrible sort of hole that we're in. I mean, I think what's interesting is that there's just that kind of question of, particularly if you take the fracking thing as an example, 
you know, part of that was obviously green campaigning. You know, you've had all of these myths peddled about the idea that if you allow fracking, you know, people's taps are going to light on fire and their yeah. houses are going to fall down. You know, the idea that they cause earthquakes when, you know, building sites are allowed to create as much more air, more kind of ground tremors, as it were, than, yeah. than fracking wells were up until the point where they were effectively banned. All of this nonsense swirling around. But even in the UK, which again, struggles to do anything you know we've been trying to build a runway for about 50 years um you know here that this fundamentally the reasons that the tories finally rolled over about fracking was because of the fact that they were worried that they would lose in those particular seats yeah. this these really narrow stupid concerns all of this you hope that it's just going to be shaken out of them because there's a real crisis upon us and we need serious politicians who are willing to make serious decisions which might upset certain people but are for the greater good but you do wonder looking at the crop of politicians we have who don't know where Russia is yeah. <laughs> um, who don't know their arse from the elbow whether or not they are going to be up to the job of what the next few months is going to represent McDonald's is pulling out of Russia as is Coca-Cola and you know for people living in Russia the symbolism of that is extraordinary because it came in before the end of the Soviet Union during the period of uh, Glasnost, and this was their sign. This was the symbol of them joining the West, of them opening up to the world. And now, you know, the tragedy is that thanks to the actions of Putin, Russia is being forced and bring, you know withdrawing itself away from the world. That kind of Western dream of Russia, symbolised in those golden arches, is is now dead really. Um, but we should talk about how Russia is seen over here as well. There's been more cultural boycotts. Tom, do you want to talk to us about Tchaikovsky? Because this seems to be the maddest example yet. Yeah. So the, the Cardiff Philharmonic Orchestra has pulled Tchaikovsky from one of its upcoming performances, uh, normally because a member of the orchestra is Ukrainian. There's concerns that it would be somehow uh, again insensitive to mm. include Tchaikovsky, despite the fact that by all accounts and from the don't know much about Tchaikovsky, but from what I've learned from the uh, craziness around this story in recent yeah. in recent days, you know, being actually quite a liberal voice, relatively speaking. I mean, I don't think he has any links to Vladimir Putin. I think that's fair to say. Um, <laughs> I think there's enough distance between his death. Exactly. You know, what, why hasn't he spoken out? That's yeah. what I want to know. But um, <laughs> this is ridiculous. But this is what we were talking about last week. You know, that university in Milan that pulls mm. its Dostoevsky course um, because it didn't want to upset anyone. I mean, there is just this knee-jerk hysteria going on. And it's just about anything that's Russian at the moment. I mean, the idea that even these kind of great cultural historical treasures um, are tainted now, yeah. are upsetting, I think speaks to that kind of Russophobia that we're, that we're walking into. Um, and the thing about the Tchaikovsky thing, or the thing about the Dostoevsky thing, it's ridiculous. And it's a, it's a concerning kind of harbing of where we're going. But at the same time, they're not around to <laughs> to witness it. Something that's a lot nastier, I think, mm. is this the... Um, artists who are very much alive who are feeling the brunt of this. I know we yeah. got into this a bit last um, on the last podcast with a couple of kind of Putin-linked um, people within classical music in the West, uh, Valery Gergiev in, in Germany and um, Anna Netrevko in America. Um, but there's even complete innocence, mm. if we're going to use that terminology, are being caught up in this. So there's been this case of Alexander Malafi, even probably mispronouncing his name, kind of 20-year-old piano prodigy. He had a performance cancelled, first in Vancouver, then another one in Montreal. Um, he's got no links to Putin. Yeah. Um, he's actually, although not at the time of his first recital being cancelled, has basically made clear that he's not exactly dead keen on this particular war. But the organiser of the first recital in Vancouver said that they could not in good faith have any Russian performer who, who is not willing to denounce the war. Yeah. Now, the full statement suggests that 
obviously we're not blaming him for this. Obviously, we know that it's very risky for someone to just make that kind of statement if they are a Russian citizen and have still got family in Russia. But you realise the test that you're setting out there mm. is a really horrendous one. There's another there's another example which I think is worth chucking. There's, there's a filmmaker called Kirill Sokolov who, um, again, has no links to Putin, has actually signed online petitions against the war, has family in Ukraine. I think his mm. grandmother is in Kiev at the moment, or certainly was at the time that this story was being reported. His film has been pulled from the Glasgow Film Festival because he, like many other independent filmmakers the world over, takes the money from the Russian equivalent of the Arts Fund. Yeah. Where does this stop? And I think the problem is it's that it doesn't even stop at Tchaikovsky and Dostoevsky at this yeah. point. So I think that this is really becoming hysteria and i think that and the upshot of it is is to is a really ugly discriminatory climate which if we don't do something about it's going to it's going to continue on for some time to come i think if it can go from tchaikovsky to the meerkat adverts because they have russian accents i mean yeah. we're just losing our minds we're losing our humanity aren't we at the end of the day yeah but to uh, to go back to your original point about you know what could have been in relation to the history of mcdonald's and things like that and you keep having the you know that article that Tim Black wrote ringing in my ears about what could have been in relation to Russia's relationship with NATO and missed opportunities over the years is that by, you know, you you have a choice, either you decide you're just going to ban all these people and, and risk nothing by not having anything that is any way related to Russia, or you make a, what I think would be probably the braver political decision if you want to make a political decision as an arts organisation and say, we are going to play these things because we understand that Russia and Russians throughout history or today, are different from Putin's autocratic regime. And that being something that so many Russians are risking their freedoms mm. and their lives within Russia to stand up and say, we know that there have been, at this point, it's thousands of people um, arrested, threatened with 15 years in jail, but still keep coming out all across Russia, showing international solidarity, as, you know, as, as tricky it is, as it is in a context in which people are saying you're a Putin stooge if you, you know, if you drink Russian vodka or something, that, <laughs> you know, to come out and say, we stand with the Russians who oppose this mm. autocrat, and, you know, and we recognise that asking a 20-year-old to basically denounce and put in danger his family back home in Russia is not the right thing. That's what people like Putin do. That's not what we do. Would be a far stronger, you know, political message to send. And we know that there is, you know, if you want to have some kind of resolution from all of this that doesn't involve making turning all Russians into pariahs as well as, as you know, defeating Putin's regime then you're going to have to extend that branch mm. of solidarity. Otherwise you end up you know, basically saying that all Russians are our enemies forever. It's also just so, some of it is just so stupid. I yeah. mean, you know, people pouring Smirnoff down the drain, even yeah. though it's, isn't it owned by Diageo? Yes. Uh, <laughs> British-based co company. Um, you know, EA Sports scrubbing all the Russian teams from the FIFA games. Yeah. Um, ITV pulling I'm a Celebrity from mm. Russia. Do they think this is going to make the blindest bit of difference? Yeah. Uh, you know, people are just banning first and asking questions later. Like, there's a there's a company called the Russian State Opera. It's just a branding thing. It's a yeah. British-based company. They use Russian artists, obviously, or people from the former Soviet Union. Um, but they've had all these performances pulled, and they've had to point out we have nothing to do with Russia. But no one really cares. But this is where you have this kind of climate, where this climate is. It's mm. unthinking at this point. It's built on a kind of quite long-running, I think it's fair to say, prejudice about them just being about Russia, this place which has given the world so much. Very yeah. troubled part of the world, of course, historically as well as if it's just some backwater that you yeah. don't want anything to do with. This is ridiculous. And as you were saying, it just plays into that narrative, which is the Kremlin narrative, which is that the Russian people and the Russian government are essentially one and the same thing.
Finally, it would be remiss of us not to talk about one sort of parochial British politics story, which is of uh, John Burko. Uh, the report into his into the bullying allegations against him has come out, and he has been named as a serial liar and serial bully. And it feels great to say that, knowing that he can't sue us for <laughs> saying. Ella, I mean, Burko is always a bit of a not someone we'd particularly liked on this show. No, politically we didn't, you know, we didn't agree with him and he has made it quite clear either within his position as speaker and after his position as speaker of what he thinks about Brexit voters like us um, and, you know, and plebs who don't follow the kind of British establishment line. But that's the politics. I mean, the hilarious thing or depressing either way you look at it is that there have been lots of people who have, you know, defended him in the past. For example, Dawn Butler was once on um, Sky News set, talking about the fact that it would be bullying in itself to not allow John Burke out a peerage. <laughs> I mean, wow, <laughs> you know, strange view of bullying. Um, he's come and, and they're all being forced now to eat their words. I mean, mm. he, not least because he's come out fighting. I mean, whatever you say about him, he's he's obviously not a man to be bent and make, forced to apologise. He's come out saying, well, sod <laughs> it, I'll get someone else's parliamentary pass. I don't care. Yeah. I'll do what I like. And perhaps it's refreshing to have someone who's so blatant in their abhorrent behaviour. But I think it's left a lot of people red faced. Yeah. I mean, the lionization of him was very, very funny. Um, you know, David Lammy called him an intergalactic hero. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's Jim, a Femi from Twitter. He said that he thought that he should do the Brexit negotiations because he'd boss them and all this sort of Brilliant. stuff. Brilliant. Berto actually has the spinning section of the parliamentary gym is dedicated to him. <laughs> I think that plaque is going to be removed. <laughs> I heard that there was going to be an explanatory plaque. <laughs> like, that, yeah, you know, next like, to his portrait. Like they'd put next to Rhodes or Colston yeah, or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But no, the, I mean, it's one of those things where you ever get where in sort of the liberal, the British liberal left more broadly, they lionise people and you're like, really? <laughs> <laughs> He's definitely one of those people. You know, this kind of very odd, bizarre, irritating kind of walking advert for the dangers of short man syndrome. <laughs> it's just there, Kira. But it just comes down to it when people, as you were saying there, everyone's very moralistic about politics yeah. these days. And every, everyone likes to pretend that it's, again, all about just being a really nice person. And yet if you, you know, you can be accused of all kinds of things, but as long as you're on the right side and as long as you're useful, that's mm. fine. But I think it does come down to the point where there's a lot of talk about bullying at the moment. It's always, a, always kind of gets at me slightly because I feel like this is the language of the playground, yeah. really. But anyway, but ultimately the thing that sh should have left him in disgrace a long time ago was the fact that he pulled every lever at his disposal. He bent every parliamentary rule, every kind of, you know, centuries old convention in order to try and stop Brexit from happening. The fact that he was lionised for that, yeah. and it's only because of this mm. that he's been kind of kicked out of polite society, I think tells us something about how difficult to dislodge that sort of Remainer elite blob is mm. even now. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday, and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.